All right. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Front End Happy Hour. In this episode, we're going to talk about a really important feature that oftentimes probably nobody really thinks deeply about. But Tony, Charles, and Charlie are all joining us from Netflix who do deeply care about this and want to really share a lot of insights in how to approach security identity to really make sure your login is secure. Tony, Charles, and Charlie, can you give brief introductions of who you are, what you do, and what your favorite happy hour beverage is? Sure, I can start. Um, so yeah, I'm Tony. I'm a staff engineer here at Netflix. I've been here for quite a while, but over the last three to four years, I've been working in the security identity space. Pretty passionate about it. Um, as far as my favorite drink, I like a Manhattan, um, but you can just as well hold the vermouth. I just love brown liquor. But today I have a sparkling cider. <laughs> it's 9.30 in the morning. Yeah, it's a little early for some cocktails. Charlie. Hey, I'm Charlie. I'm a technical program manager at Netflix. I've been working in security for uh, my entire career. And as for happy hour drink, um, I don't drink alcohol, so it'd be Coke Zero. Nice. Charles. Hi, um, I'm the last half of TCC, as I like to uh, formally call us, Tony, Charles, and Charlie. Um, I am a product lead at Netflix for identity and security. If Netflix is a house, my team and I work on the front door experience. And um, I also don't drink like Charlie. I have water today. But back in back when I was drinking, I was a Scotch guy, Lafroyac to be specific. I like that woody, peaty taste. But uh, today it's a lot about the hydration, so I have H2O. Right on. And let's also give introductions of today's panelists. Cole, you want to start it off? Hey everyone, my name is Cole. I'm an engineer at Netflix working on UIs. Jem. Jem Young, engineering manager at Netflix. And I'm Ryan Burgess. I'm an engineering manager at Netflix. In each episode of the Front End Happy Hour podcast, we like to choose a keyword that if it's mentioned at all in the episode, we will all take a drink. What did we decide today's keyword is? Credentials. Credentials. All right. So, you know, talking about passwords and security, I'm assuming this is going to come up. And yes, we'll all take a drink. Now, I had talked about at the start of the episode, login being an important feature why is it so important let's just start there i think it sets like a good first impression for our users right um i think a good login experience is one that no one notices but a bad one is one that people notice or lets bad people in yeah, i can take a bad on this one um you know let's let's roll it back you know in the fiscal world we you know all enter things we open doors we you know, open doors of your house doors of your car you open your fridge door and in the fiscal world, it's, you know, getting access. But you think about the digital world, you know, access and identity. Who, who are you when you're trying to open these uh, digital doors is very important. Uh, do you have access? Are you authorized? All those interesting things. So I'd say identity in the digital world is uh, really fascinating, um, spanning from like anonymous to, you know, you know who you are. So it's, it's a really fascinating space. And I will say, it's the foundation to like a lot of these um, digital interactions. What is that identity construct? Yeah, I also like thinking about how important it is too, because even what Tony had said, like it, you know, it's that first impression, but it's like it's required, right? If you want to get to a application, so many applications that we use on a daily basis, you're logging in. Like everybody is touching that feature, which is, uh, I think, an important thing to call out too. Is like you're not using products if you're not using that login. A lot of engineers listening, what techniques should engineers be thinking about when building login functionality? I think 
With almost everything, my answer is it depends. Um, but I think first you got to understand the trade-offs presented to you um, by your requirements, right? So I think, you know, you might choose different technologies or techniques if you're like a bank or a hospital versus if you're a streaming service or like a blog or something. Um, and then you could, um, you could like extend that to um, choosing what credentials you want to allow. So you want to use, oh, credentials. Cheers. Um, emails, phone numbers, passwords, biometrics, pass keys, pin codes. Each of these have different trade-offs with the level of security, how easy it is for our users to use, and then frankly, how hard it is and how hard it is to maintain it from an engineering point of view. Um, so there's just a few. I can go deeper into some more as well, but I'll let other folks chime in. And I'll say Charlie has this fantastic analogy he's been dropping internally. Charlie, do you want to take it? Uh, the the balance of A versus B? Sure. I, I think that whenever you think about um, products and security, there's always going to be this tension between usability and security insofar as um, a, the most usable system is the least secure system and the most secure system is the least usable system. And ideally, you want to be able to find a way to define the right trade-offs between both of them. Um, in terms of like a login experience, I think one thing that engineers should consider is is what is your threat model, right? Like, what are you really trying to per, per, like protect against? And then in order to actually create a good threat model, what you need to understand is like, what are the assets you're trying to protect, right? What is the attack surface, which is going to be your login? Um, who is like the threat actor? Are we talking about organized crime? Are we talking about script kitties? Are we talking about nation state actors? And then what is their attack vector going to be, right? Is it going to be credential stuffing? Is it going to be brute force attacks? When you kind of understand like what are you trying to protect against and then who is actually trying to make those attacks, then I think you can try to find a level of security that is acceptable to like the business and also like usable for the consumer too. That was amazing. I think you said credential. Cheers. 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 Script kitties. I wonder where that term came from actually. What is a script kitty? A script kitty is is a is a hacker who uses pre-made tools. Um so tools like um like Kali Linux in the suite of tools they have there, like Nmap for reconnaissance for, for networks, um other types of tools to essentially conduct like brute force attacks on, on passwords, perhaps like search for various types of software vulnerabilities, like like um, injection attacks and things of that nature. And then you have like your more like sophisticated hackers, if you will, who have like their own custom scripts, their own custom programs. Uh, but generally speaking, it's like a level of sophistication and script kitties are kind of like on the lower tire. I'll add, um, in the experience I've had in internet forums, like WordPress or whatever, uh, what Charlie said is there's people who are building the scripts and then there are people who are running them. And so in my experience, a lot of WordPress installations get attacked on day zero or day one because these scripts get released to the underground forums and everyone goes around and starts figuring out which of these WordPress installations are vulnerable. Man, WordPress is a tough one too because it has such a large footprint across the internet too. And so that's that's an interesting call out, Cole. I remember there was times when people thought like hiding the admin URL would help them. I think it's like WP dash admin, like that's like the main open source one. Well, there's ways in which you can change that, right? So that it's like Cole's login, you know, as a URL, but like that's not really helping anything. Am I right? Are you talking about security through obscurity, right? Like, yeah, right. Because you just can't guess what it, what it is. Yeah, 
Uh, yeah, I don't think that's very good. Unless it's very obscure, I suppose. I had a situation like that, like hiding the admin panel, but also I worked for someone who just wanted completely custom software so that if there were scripts released, that piece of software would not be vulnerable. But that comes with its own trade-offs. Like what vulnerabilities are you introducing and are you protecting the credentials? That was going to be my, uh, my point on login is don't roll your own. Like this is a well-trodden path. Use use the libraries and stuff that people uh, follow, unless you have some really, 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 really specific use case, like you're the CIA or something like that. I don't know. Uh, the, the The fact is, like a lot of issues we see with security uh, stem from people trying to be smart or lazy and be like, "Oh, I'll just do this," or instead of hashing my password, uh, I'll just MD five it a bunch of times, like ten times, and no one will ever get that. Um, and it, like, and it seems secure and that's, that's the problem is like most of us don't know anything about it. Like 99% of engineers don't know what they're doing. So, uh, when I'm thinking about login, it's like, what's the most popular thing? Uh, what, it, what is, what is well known? And I'm going to go that path. And then I'll talk to people who know, and, and they can tell me if I'm right or wrong, but generally that's going to get me most of the way versus me trying to be smart and like, how hard can it be? Uh, you know, the common fallacy of every every engineer out there. I mean, I love that comment, Gem, of like, how hard can it be? It is not easy to roll your own login. And I've done it. I definitely have been that engineer thinking, oh, I can do this and have built like a web app where it's like just, oh, yeah, I'll roll my own login. And it's a, there's just so much to do there. And then all the little mistakes that you can make, not even just for login, but I think about even just any time that you're tying to a database. And like, I've seen so many, so many people make this mistake and it's such a little one is just like not, you know, preventing in an input field like JavaScript, right? Like someone could just like input some JavaScript that like redirects people or just does finicky things that you need to just think about all those little nuances that may not even break someone into like hacking into your login but it's just those like little nuanced things that add up really quickly and i found that i made those mistakes and learned like oh yes like this is actually really hard to do that was early in my career now i would not try and roll my own needless to say you shouldn't try to do too much fancy stuff on a client a lot of this authentication stuff should all happen in the back end far away from prying bad actors uh, you know, maybe encrypt it before it goes over the wire. Don't maybe send passwords, plain text. But other than that, don't try to do anything fancy on the client. That's a good call out. Yeah, don't don't store the, the password in plain text like Tony said. Better yet, I mean, store a salted hash password in your database. That's, that's the way to go. Any other things that we should be calling out for people if they are approaching passwords, uh, creating login? Even in addition to getting it right with how you store the passwords, how you transmit them over the wire, there are still these other um, proximity attacks towards brute forcing. So um, if, let's say you have the most secure database, the most secure uh, network protocol, if you're not preventing people from spamming uh, different passwords, they'll be able to guess it. And there are attacks with different layers so they can brute force. There's social engineering. There's many ways in which a password or credential, cheers, can be compromised. Cheers. And so as we're talking about not rolling your own, there's really, you want to follow industry best practices. You want to see what is the right login solution for this application because Maybe it's not passwords. Maybe it's like an email magic link. Maybe it's uh, the future of pass keys or something else entirely. Hopefully not your social security number, though. 
Yeah, I think in general, we'd like to kill the password, right? Um, it's an antiquated thing, but users are used to using it. And it's going to take years to kill. But as Cole mentioned, there's all sorts of other things you can use. You can use uh, pin codes. You can use magic links. You could use multi-factor auth, direct device-to-device -device communication. Some interesting things there. What do you think about the password? The password will never die. I can actually stick on my chest and say the password will probably never die because fax machines are still being used widely. Like in Japan and other places, people use fax machines. And in other industries, they use fax machines. You think about Fortran, COBOL. I've worked in places where they're still using COBOL and mainframe. Passwords will never die. However, there's going to be a mix shift slowly with a very long tail. Like Tony mentioned, we started with passwords, um, you know, username password. Then we started moving to, you know, maybe MFA, where you had an authenticator, that Outcast stuff. Then, app, well, actually, first, Windows came in first with uh, Windows Hello. So I was PM for that back in the day. Um, and the value prop there was they can't, you can't hack your face. No one can hack your face. Smile and log in. And I think that was really cool. It didn't really get mass adoption until, like, Apple came in with Face ID and I just went supernova. And I found myself, like, with apps and services that leverage Face ID, um, Touch ID, it's just so easy and seamless to use, and it just helped it gain mass adoption. And then, like you also hinted, over time, you know, the mobile phone became really predominant in everyone's pocket. So people started thinking of what is that kind of login way with your phone and, you know, the OTP or the, what do you call a one-time passcode became a thing. I think Magic Link is really hot right now because uh, there's this funny thing that I have observed throughout my career in security over 10 years. You try to log into something you don't use often. You get to password, you blank out, you go and click forget password. You go to your email, you check your email, you reset your password, they tell you set a new password, you type something in, you hit enter, and what does it tell you, gentlemen? It tells you you cannot reuse your old password. It is literally this really, really weird thing of at the moment of entry and recall, it's not the same, similar to how you can um, understand a language and not speak it. I think it's just somewhere in our brain when we are being forced to like, put in that entry. And Tony has a fantastic TikTok video that sums up all the work we do at Netflix on logging in. I'm a long-winded way of saying we are dealing with human beings at the end. Human beings are finicky. And um, I think Magic Link is really fantastic because it's like a blend of something you know and really gets it there. And then I would say the next thing of the Magic Link is um, your past keys are you know, getting prominence. I think it's a... A better, stronger way of logging in. We've seen like Google, like leverage it. On the kind of streaming SVOD side, we're not really seeing kind of a need for it yet. But I'll say um, it's a watch and see, you know, similar to how like QR codes was like niche. And then with COVID 2020, they went from niche to mainstream. So that's the beauty of this space. And that's what gives me really like interested in it, that it keeps morphing and changing over time. But one thing that I'll know is uh, when it's all said and done, when we are somewhere, you know, with our credentials, Passwords will never die. Yeah, I think you're not wrong there. It's like, I love that you called it the fax machine because I feel like I heard that recently where someone's like, oh, we had to fax this. And I was like, wait, what? Like, wh why is that a thing? Like, just email it at least. So it is funny. Like, things do not die. They last a long time, which makes a ton of sense. We've talked a lot about passwords and login identity. What are mistakes that like a user or all of us, I mean, we all have using products like Netflix and, and things like, what are mistakes that people should avoid when they're creating passwords or leveraging a login? I mean, this one's pretty obvious, but don't reuse the same password. I mean, that's the number one 
advice, give everybody that you know, don't you reuse the same password, <laughs> use a password manager. Um, but you know, people still do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, some quick it? comments there. <laughs> Over a lot of research studies, what happens is people have like two or three main base anagrams of their password, and then they append something on. So it could be, let's say, a Tony, some sort of ampersand or ad or exclamation point, and then a year. And I bet a million bucks, the year is a year you created the account. So somebody just gets one of your passwords, they can start really trying to guess what the other passwords you are. And it's actually like two or three that people just reuse. Um, the most popular password is password one, two, three, four, five, six, QWERTY. Some of the good websites block those popular ones. But if you go, let's say you're looking at, you know, someone's Uber Eats accounts, password is most likely Uber at date of birth or year. And it's so wild. So I think the scary thing about passwords is if one of them are cracked, it is so easy for somebody to try and guess the other ones you have, which makes it really dangerous. And if you get, I think the keys to the castle here are your email and your phone number, because then you can really reset a bunch of stuff and cause some crazy havoc. Hey, Charlie, I wonder if you could like talk about where people get these passwords. I know there's like huge dumps of, of like credentials from Ocheers from like previous hacks and stuff. And I know that we've been, um, they've been used against us here at Netflix before. Yeah, so um, let me just say that Passwords are a paradox, and that's because passwords have to be both memorable and they also have to be unique, right? And those two things are conflicting, right? If it's if it's if it's unique, it's not memorable. If it's memorable, it's usually not unique. And because you know the the guidelines is that you should have a separate password for you know your various computer systems, you have a lot of things to kind of keep in your brain. If they all if they all meet like the NIST requirements, which is the uh, the National Institute of Standards and Technology for, for Cybersecurity. Um, it's extremely long and complicated. And it's extremely long and complicated because um, it's, it's in order to combat like brute force attacks to make it feasibly impossible for a computer to brute force a, a login, right? If you were to actually meet those, those NIST requirements because of the number of permutations possible. Um, so so that, that, that in general is why passwords are just kind of difficult. But in terms of just where you can get these passwords from, so um, there's, there's a website in my, in my pwned, um, and in my pwned, you can just go and put your email address there, and you can actually see whether or not your email address is actually associated with any of these, these credential dumps. And I'll, I'll go ahead and take a drink. So <laughs> what happens is that because people reuse their passwords, um, if you, you use your password on LinkedIn, uh, say 10 years ago, or the, the, the password used on LinkedIn 10 years ago is the same password used today. Well, when LinkedIn got breached, um, a couple of years ago, um, because they did not store their their passwords in a way that was that was encrypted, um, essentially all of those those um, credential combinations were leaked onto the internet, and then folks essentially kind of peddle in them, and they sell those credential dumps to um, whoever wants to buy them, or they just kind of you know leave it out there for anybody to 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 um, to kind of explore, and to that extent, you'll have. You'll have hackers, you'll have script kiddies who essentially take these these dumps and then use them to credential stuff uh, logins. So that that's usually how um, that's usually how uh, most logins are breached. Um, it's not necessarily brute force attacks. It's, it's usually credential stuffing. And then a, a quick follow up to Charlie. So you know, analogy here or story time. If your house is on fire, you're going to call nine one one or try to do something about it. If your credentials are on fire, aka they have been stolen or leaked, you would expect the normal human behavior to change it. But surprisingly enough, 
everybody's password has been leaked once. Like you go to Hawaii and Pwned, you see less of passwords and you freak out. But most people feel a little bit uncomfortable and they don't do anything at all. Because to change all your passwords is such a big bear that people just go like, well, no one's going to hack me. I'm not a celebrity. I'm not Beyonce, whatever. And they just move on. So what do you realize is even when you tell people, like you go to your Google account security checkup, they'll pop and say, hey, this password has been seen in um, uh, what do you call it? What, one of these have I been pwned or hash dumps? You should consider changing them. Most people go like, yeah, whatever, and move on. And I think that's the really unique human psychology behind the identity and security space that you know developers need to think about. You should assume that everybody will be hacked at a point in time. You should assume there's going to be social engineering. I think one of the great things I like is um, any bank that's or any company that sends you like a short code tells you we will never call you for this number and then tells you the number. That's a good way to reinforce it because um, no matter what you do, you will be hacked. And when you get hacked, you may really not do anything about it. But I'll say 2FA is that last thing standing between you and really bad things happening. I'll say the the trick about security is kind of the same about cars. You know the old adage, if if someone wants to break into your car, they're going to break into your car. It doesn't matter if you parked in a secure garage, you have like a steering wheel lock, you have GPS, all that. Like... If someone wants to steal your car, they're going to do it. The same kind of applies to security. If someone wants to go after you, they're probably going to be able to do it. Like, that's just the truth of it. We're all vulnerable in some way, whether it's some obscure password, like uh, like you all mentioned from 20 years ago that someone digs up and turns out like that's your root password to your like one password or your other or last pass or something like that. Or if someone wants to fish you and just get you your password, because that's the easiest way of, of hacking somebody is just asking them for their password rather than being like, I'm really clever and I'm going to apply uh, like this massive supercomputer to, to break their encryption or something like that. Or like, hey, this is the bank. Um, you're out of money. We need your password to figure it out. And they're like, okay. And they'll, like, they'll just hand it over. That's so much easier. And people forget about that. So the, the truth is if someone really, really wants to go after you, they're probably going to be able to. Uh, but we we add in all these things to make it as difficult as possible, like using a password manager, using multi-factor authentication, uh, using passkey, use, using biometric login. Because those are all really just like barriers that someone's going to be like, you know what, I'm going to go after the next person who is still using password 123 as their main password. Sorry, Cole, you got to change your passwords again. Uh, and that that's always my thought on security is like, I just try to make it as difficult as possible but I'm also not super paranoid because I know that if someone really, 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 really wants to get me, they probably could through some vector that I, so I just try to be wary and that's probably the best you can do. But Charles, like you're saying, humans are going to human. Uh, they're not going to change their passwords. Uh, so it's up to us in engineering on security side, just saying like, try to help people along and try to make, make them make good decisions. I like what you said too, Jem, on like the car analogy. It's like when I think about it, it's like cars or your house, all those things is like, I don't care how secure it is. It's like, there's always a way in, right? Like even the the social engineering of it, or there's some way to do that. But I think it's like, if you, with your password, create something that is more secure or two-factor or 
biometrics, whatever it is. It's like those extra steps are just making, if I was a hacker, I'm not going to go after that person unless I really need to go after that person. I'm going to go get the person who used password one, two, three, four, five, because it's like, that's easy. And I can get into more things because they haven't put uh, the attention into that. So I think that's something to really think about too, is like, yes, you probably can get hacked, but there's low hanging fruit for hackers that, you know, maybe you just stand out a little bit different. That reminds me, Jem, what is the name of your elementary school? Or what's uh, the make it, of your first It's color? called One Two Fake <laughs> Elementary. <laughs> what's your favorite color? <laughs> uh, yes. Burnt Tangerine. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because credentials is like the first half of this, but there's the other side of security, which is security questions. Cheers. And so if you're not getting social engineered through your password or through a fake phone call from your bank, or maybe you're an employee at, an M- at MGM, uh, you could be getting questions on the internet. Like all of these personality quizzes that are actually social engineering attacks, like, hey, what high school did you attend? Or what was the name of your favorite pet? And these sound so like so like, oh, let me answer this because I just want to share this with everyone. And someone is watching that, picking up that fact and running with it. And this is really why as an engineer or as a user, I really prefer single sign-on. Uh, for websites that I don't really care about, I use a password manager or some random password I've got. But generally, if it's not my bank or it's not something that's super vulnerable to my life, then I'll use single sign-on through Google. And that way... I trust that Google has it covered. I have. I trust that they have the brute force attacks covered or all the other uh, vulnerabilities. If I could just um, comment on what you just said, Cole. Um, what you're talking about specifically in the beginning <clears throat> was security questions, right? Like what elementary school did you go to? What's the color of your first car? If, it's, if, if multi-factor authentication is implemented correctly, that should not be the case, right? Because multi-factor authentication is something you know, something you have, something you are, right? Those are the three factors involved. So if you if your first form of authentication is your password, that's something you know. And if your second form of authentication is your security question, that's also something you know. So that's really not MFA, right? It should be something you have like your phone or something you are like biometrics. I'm also curious, Cole, what are you alluding to on this MGM hack? Wasn't there a recent uh, MGM, uh, not the studio, sorry, MGM in Las Vegas was having trouble with all of its screens, its monitors, TVs, etc., because uh, some clever hacker uh, managed to social engineer a password from an employee. I think they called like the help desk spoofing this person's number. It was pretty sophisticated, and now they have they're holding them for like thirty million dollars in ransom. I think I read like people are not being able to go into their rooms and stuff. But I'll say, when you think about security, it's literally like the lowest hanging fruit. So yes, you can have the castle really guarded well have everybody with 2FA and everything, but then there's just like that one person. So, you know, it can be someone they are close with, someone that has access to them. If you're able to go on their TikTok or social media and social engineer them, you have somebody who has penetrated the castle. I think there's all these like business compromise email stuff that just happens when somebody breaks in and waits. So it literally, it's you are secure as the least secure person in your organization, period. And this, this is why there's... That from from the tech community, there's always pushback against the idea of backdoors uh, on phones and computers and things like that. And for those who don't know, backdoor is like a shortcut to all the security. You could have 15 layers of security. If there's a backdoor, uh, someone has the key, 
they just walk right in. And the argument for the governments is like, well, we need to be able to decrypt WhatsApp and Signal and like all these secure communications because terrorists and, you know, for the children and all these reasons. And and I think a rational person would be like, yeah, that's that's true. I, I want security or I want our government. I want people looking out for our uh, safety to be able to, you know, do what they need to do to find the information. But the problem is what we're describing here is uh, if someone has like a kind of a skeleton key to all the the uh, encryption and security, it doesn't matter what our passwords are for using multi-factor authentication because there's one big gate that everybody's going to go after. So you can have this giant, giant wall, but if there's a tiny hole in the wall, everybody's going to go through that. I, I won't. Uh, I think uh, Tony studies history. Uh, he could probably talk about the Maginot line in, uh, in, in France, which is an interesting story, but like it's kind of the same thing. It doesn't matter how good your security is if you didn't, if there's just a, a hole in your wall somewhere. Uh, and that's why if you ever read about, you know, people against backdooring and uh, government trying to break encryption, that's why it, you just can't trust anybody when it comes to security, not even yourself. Very true. Uh, since you mentioned it, Jim, I have to bite. Um, imagine a line the French built after World War One to defend against any future German attacks. And they built it this huge, very fortified um, wall along the coast, sorry, the, in the border between France and Germany, right? But they did not reinforce at all the border between Belgium and German and, and France. So that way, when uh, the Germans wanted to invade, they just went through Belgium and they went right in. Didn't have to stop at all. Um, but uh, you mentioned, you mentioned backdoors and, and government stuff. I think uh, Charlie, because of his pretty interesting background, might have some insight into this. If you're willing to share Charlie. Well, there's, there's a, there are a lot of ways to, of course, break into a computer system. And I think, one thing that we've alluded to on, on this chat is just how humans are the weakest link. Um, but in addition to that, there are um, a number of other considerations. So, for instance, uh, data sovereignty is, is a really big issue. So, for instance, where is the data actually being stored at? So, for instance, a lot of tech companies will store their data in Germany because Germany has a very, uh, very strong um, and uh, impartial court system, right? Um, versus storing it in, say, another country in which that particular government could actually access that those servers and perhaps actually get the data off of that. Um, there's, of course, a lot of talk about just how uh, governments will collude with, say, multinational tech companies in order to um, essentially have those backdoors to unencrypt, you know, pieces of information. So that that's also a possibility too. Um, but there are there are, you know, almost infinite ways for you to steal information. So, for instance, if you if you don't have the advantage of having like the servers in your particular country, if you don't have the advantage of colluding with a tech company, um, you know, you can essentially try to like forge a certificate of, of a website or something. You know, there's a there's there's a classic example of Iran who actually um, forged like the, the like the Google certificate and essentially had all of Gmail. Um, you know, uh, exposed to them because they essentially had like a fake Gmail uh, website uh, that was redirected to them, but they actually forged Google's Gmail certificate so they could actually see all the um, all the correspondence from the users coming in and out of the country. So, you know, th that's just one example of just how um, powerful like governments are in terms of just the way they can actually you know, penetrate computer systems. Yeah, and um, just to add on to that, I think governments are powerful, but also we have these massive gatekeepers um, so i'm saying gatekeeper i have like a billion plus users so there's like 16 google products that hit that threshold microsoft has the work the world's email with um, exchange um 
Facebook, Google, um, Apple, etc. So the fundamental thing is, as you're building code, you know, whatever can be a slight miss can then be exploited as zero day. And there's a market for zero days um, that people buy and sell. And there's also like companies like Pegasus that specialize in zero days, so like hack iPhones and stuff. So I'll say as people who are building these applications, you know, it's not someone, it's not someone in someone's mom's basement who's going to be hacking. It's most likely going to be pretty sophisticated nation state actors who are leveraging zero day exploits, which could be something that was not really seen, but, um, you know, can then become really interesting. I think the most interesting one most recently was, um, what was the one that happened a year or two ago um, that we, all companies needed to like rewrite a bunch of stuff ASAP because some of the um, open source, Log yeah, log J. J4S, yeah, exactly. So for, that's an example of if, you know, with the open source community, when you build things on the top of things and a zero day is found in one of those, everybody's got some big problems. Yeah, I mean, that was a huge endeavor for all companies, like for individuals, everything. Like it was just a massive panic and odd timing too, because I believe it was right before the holidays too. So like people are scrambling to get that all fixed and addressed. Since we're front engineers and we, many of us use NPM and we're talking about open source packages and, you know, the Netflix website probably depends on thousands. Um, If even one of those were to be compromised, you know, that could be a huge uh, open hole. I'm curious if anyone has any more information about how we protect against that or, or if you have any examples. At Netflix, I know that we have a node runtime team as well as security teams that are often running routine inspections of uh, our code artifacts to see if any of the packages or dependencies that we depend on have introduced common attack vectors. Uh, It's not perfect, but also we rely on just the open source community itself. If there was a vulnerability, having all of the eyes on it helps and we would be made aware of it before uh, it would become too serious. But at the same time, Tony, how you're talking about open source being an attack vector, I feel like on the flip side, a lot of more individual, on an individual level, we are often targeted through email phishing. And so as we were talking about um, different attack vectors, it's really interesting to see that social engineering isn't so much on the uh, security question side, it's more on the email side. You'll get an email that looks like your bank or um, some other highly sensitive system And you're like, oh gosh, somebody's attacking me. I better click this email and log in. Or another example is at uh, many corporate offices, the security divisions will do annual training where they send out purposeful uh, phishing emails. And a really great example was, I think I heard there was like free tickets to Taylor Swift's Eras tour. And, you know, the world being uh, a Swifty place, uh, so many people in that organization had clicked that email for free tickets and they're like, oh, you have to go through training because we can't trust you. Uh, <laughs> and all it took was Taylor Swift. I mean, I'll give up my social security number. Where, how, where's the tickets? Come on. Like that's, I mean, right? people are excited <laughs> for it, right? But Tony, your your uh, question is like, um, like, what do we do? What do companies do on some sort of vulnerabilities? That's actually one of the problems with security too, is most big companies, um, won't tell you what they do with security because like, you know, if we told everybody exactly what we did, then we're not as secure. Um, 
And that's kind of the inherent challenge with security too, which is like, oh, Netflix does it right. Uh, nobody's hacked whatever. Uh, how do they do it? Well, we're not going to tell you because that that's just not good security. But how do other people follow? Uh, so I'm curious, like how how you all how do you keep up with the what's happening in security? Is there a secret conference where there's like no recording allowed, and you all talk to each other in hush hush tones in a corner, or is there just general best practices that are okay to share out? In terms of, well, I think when most people think about security, they think they think about vulnerabilities, right? So let me just take a step back and say, when when you build a computer network, um, there are when when you say code something incorrectly or you introduce a particular um, weakness, right? That is called a um, a CWE, a common weakness, um, a common weakness and exposure. So you you don't do like a like a like actual parameter checks when you when you take in like some something from a website or you accidentally introduce the ability for someone to do some sort of injection attack, right? That is a, is a weakness. And then when a weakness is actually identified in a piece of software, that turns into a CVE, which is a common vulnerability and enumeration, right? CVEs um, are then given what's called a CVSS score from a NIST, right? The, the organization I talked about earlier. So in short, whenever a new vulnerability is found within a piece of software that's ultimately linked to a CWE, a weakness in software, um, it is given a CVE number and a corresponding CVSS score talking about um, how how essentially um, damaging this could be to a, a given network itself. And there are various other ways to calculate that score, including like how recent the vulnerability is, um, what is like the state of your computer network. But in short, when you think about like Log4j, for instance, that was a CVS of 10 out of 10, right? The highest one available. So I think when most people are, are considering, like, how do you actually find out about, like, what is, um, what are the, the security vulnerabilities out there? The best place to actually look is, is through NIST and look at the actual CVE uh, enumeration list and also the CVSS corresponding scores. And if you want to learn more about just how to how to actually fix those things and how to prevent um, CVEs from materializing in the first place, it's, it's worth like, digging a little bit deeper and actually looking at the CWEs, which are actually published by, by MITRE, which is an organization that does a lot of security research. So what you're saying is there's not a dark room where everyone gets together in cloaks and discusses dark security secrets instead. You're saying it's very much in the public eye. And anyone that's that's called Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Fair, enough. Fair enough. That's or, or should we call it X? I still don't know, but oh hey. Oh my God. <laughs> Before we dive into picks, I would love to even hear, like going back to something that Jem had said about like not rolling your own login, what are some technologies or things that engineers could be leveraging? Like there are a lot of open source libraries and things. What, what would you all recommend? If I was starting out, I would do, I think, what Cole alluded to, which is using, I guess, what you call federated identity or like login with Apple, login with Google. You get a lot kind of for free. It doesn't make sense for every service, uh, especially maybe one like Netflix, where we have a lot of different client types. It's kind of hard to transfer credentials in that way. But if you're just making a simple app or a simple web app, I think just bolting that on gives you a lot of peace of mind for very little cost. So that's what I would go with. All right. Well, uh, let's jump into picks. In each episode of the Front End Happy Hour podcast, we like to share things that we've found interesting, want to share with you all. Sometimes it's topic related of the episode, sometimes not. Really doesn't matter. Jem, do you want to start us off? Uh, sure. I have uh, two picks. The first one is a Netflix show 
Uh, it's called Sanctuary. It's a Japanese show, and it's about sumo wrestling. And I, I, I'm a big fan of anything involving sports uh, because it makes me appreciate how much goes into even things that look simple. Like sumo, I always thought it's just like, oh, you get you get big and fat. You you put on a little underwear thing and you you wrestle the other big fat guy and try to push him out of a ring. But really, after watching Sanctuary, which is which is a drama um, based on kind of this uh, ne'er do well. Uh, rebel sumo wrestler coming up in the ranks. Uh, it, it made me appreciate like how complex sumo is, um, like as a martial art, and how like the match is over usually in a few seconds. But there's so much technique that goes into that. It just like that's just how the the fights end. It's just really really fast. Um, so I really enjoyed it. it. It made me anything that makes me appreciate something else, whether it's cars or um, science or technology, like the the humans behind it and the the thinking. I always like those type of shows. Uh, so that show is Sanctuary on Netflix. Uh, my second one is a Valley Silicon pick. Normally, I'd say uh, Valley Silicon is the part of the show where I pick things that are ridiculous or overpriced and only exist because we get paid too much here in Silicon Valley. But this one is a little bit different. So this one is actually free. It is a free TV. Does that sound good to you all? You want a free TV? Yeah. Depends. What's the catch, though? <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, Cole, Cole said, yeah, so he's getting a free TV. So there's a company, and I believe they're a uh, Silicon Valley company. They're offering consumers a free TV. And it's a nice one, like a 60-inch, you know, 4K, all that good stuff. The downside, yes, tra- Charles, you can't see, is, sh- is shaking his finger. Yes, there's nothing, nothing free on the internet. Uh, the downside is uh, there's a second screen underneath that TV. And on that screen, they're displaying ads to you 24-7 all the time. Uh, it gets even better. It gets even better. There's cameras in there monitoring how if how many people are in the room listening to your conversation. They're they're actively like, you know, streaming everything that you're streaming. So they're watching every single click, uh, everything you say about a show. Um, yeah. Like it's kind of a free-for-all in your privacy. And, and plus you're getting bombarded with ads, not only that. But it's a free TV. Literally 1984. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's one of those like just tech dystopia things where people are willing to give up a lot and they're giving up a lot more value than they're getting on that TV and they're just not aware of it. And I, to me, it's so, it's so absurd, but I'm also aware of my privilege where I can just buy a bunch of TVs and not have to worry about that. But still, I, the fact that a company like this exists is to me is like the, the dark side of tech that I, I really, really dislike about our industry is just people will sell you privacy and your data and ads and like, they'll just do anything and they'll justify it. And they're like, Oh, we're giving people a free TV. Uh, so anyways, that that's my Valley Silicon pick more of a tech dystopia pick. Uh, I hope this company doesn't go anywhere. Cause I'm sorry. That that's just not good. Jeb, there was an episode on black mirror about this called million mile merits. Like literally the, we're in black mirror now. Yeah. It's it's like uh, they're getting inspired by Black Mirror to create more technology. Soon we'll have those robot dogs that hunt you. They already exist. They do exist. Like, right. oh, yes, crap. yeah. Man, <laughs> what are we doing? Netflix, stop putting out Black Mirror, giving people ideas. Could you uh, could you imagine in like you know pitches for like VCs funding all that? Like they come in, they're like, we have this idea. Picture you remember seeing that Black Mirror episode? It's like we've created that. Let's throw the money at it. Like it's like that's like the the type of shit that's happening. Jeez. Anyways, uh, that 
that's my my rants. Um, yeah, come on, Tech. Come on, we could do better. All right, Cole, what do you have for us? Hey everyone, I've got two picks today. My first pick is if you've listened to this episode and you're not sure where to start in terms of what are different front-end security things to consider, I'm going to link to an article that says 10 popular types of attacks and best practices to prevent them. It's a pretty good checklist if you're building front-end applications of things that you can look through. And then if you really want to get deep into um, client-side security, there's a library that I really like for client-side encryption. It's called the Stanford JavaScript Crypto Library, SJCL. And it's really effective at encrypting even larger payloads client-side and sending them over the wire. And that way, in some sense, even your backend can be obscure from what is happening on the client-side. And those are my two picks. Right on. Tony, what kind of picks do you have for us? Uh, Let's see. Uh, Mine's kind of odd. It's uh, FigJam um, from Figma. Um, I find that workflow diagrams are my favorite tool when explaining complicated technical concepts to non-technical people. Um, And FigJam just does a beautiful job of that. Um, So if you are looking to communicate something technical to some of your stakeholders, make a workflow diagram. Tony, why are you giving up all our secrets, man? You're literally talking about our life. <laughs> I mean, just to finish the Tony one, fun fact, I'm actually an engineer by training, so I can get into the code. You don't want me to write any code. Um, my fa- my picks are, um, I'm a big sci-fi guy, so as um, a bunch of folks on my team know, I'm big on sci-fi. My current fascination is on Foundation, based off the Isaac Asimov books. It's a fantastic show on Apple, on a different platform, by the folks who make the iPhone. Um, the season finale happened yesterday, and it's just really fantastic um, storytelling. We just because what I love about sci-fi is just abstracts humanity. It's a different setting, but it's still human emotions, and I think that's what is really cool. Second obsession is um, I have similar to Gem Silicon Valley one. I don't have too many hobbies, and I'm slowly getting fascinated with coffee culture, and I'm so scared I'm becoming that person who starts to talk, being really snobby about coffee rolls and blends and french presses and all these elaborate rituals you do to just get your cup of coffee i started from trader jules cold brew i migrated to um an espresso like about a month ago and i'm already thinking about the next thing i can get that can make my coffee game much more elaborate so um one is foundation two is picking up a bad coffee habit right on thank you very much charlie what do you have uh because this this episode is about security. Um, I'll just say, if folks are interested in the topic, um, look up the side channel attacks. They are my absolute favorite type of, uh, of attacks for um, penetrating computer networks. And they're the type of attacks you use to, where you look at the physical characteristics of the system and try to determine its cryptography. So for instance, there have been studies in which um, folks would say, um, send emails, right? And based upon like the flickering of the LED light, they would actually be able to determine like crypto analysis and determine what is the actual like like key used for that particular encryption. So side channel attacks are absolutely fascinating. Um, I think it's it's one place where it doesn't get a whole lot of attention because you know things like social engineering typically do, but that is the part of of, of security which I think is absolutely brilliant. Just take a look. Wow. <laughs> I'm I'm blown away just hearing that. I, I saw I saw a talk about that from DEF CON, I think, but I've also seen one where you can listen to someone's keyboard 
and then know what they're typing based on the characteristic sounds with like 95% accuracy. It's insane. That's wild. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I think we just said before we even started this episode, security is one of those things that if you're working in security, you are always going to have a job because it doesn't matter how great the technology gets, there's some way to penetrate it. And and that's like interesting, just getting in that mindset. So yeah, thank you for sharing that one. I have uh, two picks for this episode. They're completely unrelated to security. One is a graffiti video that uh, I came across, uh, I don't know, a few weeks ago, where a graffiti crew went and spent seven days in Chile. And uh, they filmed pretty much all their graffiti that they were doing. It's it's a really well done film. I liked a lot of the camera work. Um, and of course, I really like graffiti. So it, it worked really well. And then I'm really glad Tony didn't pick this one. This is something that Tony shared with me earlier this week. It really killed my productivity, though. But it's a really cool web game that someone had created called SF Streets. So it's essentially it's a map of San Francisco and you were trying to, by memory, fill in all the different streets, which that's cool and all. But what I really like about it is the length of the streets also give a percentage. So you're like coverage of San Francisco and you're sitting there trying to remember all the various names. One thing, one trick to it is do the one to 48 streets that, you know, exist that are just first street, second street. You'll get quite a bit there, but it's been fun. I'm not haven't tapped out yet, but I'm scared to open up Google Maps now because I don't want to like have that show me any street names. I'm trying to remember them by memory. You don't want to cheat. Yeah, it's a really it's it's well done. I would love to see this created for multiple cities. I think that would be really cool. So yeah, I've had a lot of fun with that one. I highly recommend anyone who's familiar with San Francisco to give it a try. Charles, Charlie, and Tony, thanks so much for joining us on this episode. It's been a pleasure having you all. I know, Tony, it's been your second episode back, so that's great having you back. And honestly, I learned so much just from this episode, so I hope our listeners did. Where can people get in touch with you if they want to reach out or talk with you all? At TedWords947 on X. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. can't believe I just said that. Charlie. You can just find me on LinkedIn. Yeah, see me. I have a Twitter I have a Twitter presence, but I'm more active on LinkedIn. So I'll say, yeah, similar to Charlie, you can find me on LinkedIn. Right on. Well, and thank you all for listening to our episode. Hopefully you learned some great tips on how to implement better security and also even just create better passwords for yourselves. You can find us on Twitter at FrontendHH. You can really find us on whatever you like to subscribe to podcasts on. Please subscribe. Tell us how we're doing. Any last words? This is Bank of America. Can you please confirm who you are? Can I have your social security number? Of course you can. I trust you completely, Cole. <laughs> What's the name of everyone's uh, childhood best friend? Just just real quick. Charles Wartenberg. <laughs> <laughs> What's, what street did you grow up on? <laughs> so far from these security things, ProHack, use a fake answer. So um, I know where I went to school, but I'll change the name a little bit or I'll change the date a little bit. So you can fudge with those security questions just to mess with people. <laughs> <laughs>